So for all you football fans out there, with Bear Bryant, Joe Namath, and Kenny Stabler back in the day, you'll love my guest today because he played on that same Alabama team as a full scholarship freshman lineman. Can you believe that? But we're not here to talk about the pigskin, but rather the true word of God, which sometimes gets muddled with translations along with unqualified preachers. Although maybe I'll slip in a football question when he's not looking. His name is Pastor Rick Hughes, who still lives in Alabama, whom I'm guessing is still a football fan. Hey, Rick, how you doing? How are you, my friend? Good to talk to you. Now, your pastor, Rick Hughes, you've been a pastor for many years, right? No, I'm not a pastor. That's where you're mistaken. I'm an evangelist. Oh, all right. Because on your books, it just says Rick Hughes. Pardon me? Because on your books, it's always Rick Hughes and not Pastor Rick Hughes. But then I thought you said it. You were a pastor, but you're an evangelist. Okay. I'm an evangelist. I do not pastor a church. No. Okay. Now, when I think of Alabama, I think of that classic song by Leonard Skinner, Sweet Home Alabama, or Jim Croce's Alabama Rain. Have you ever heard of them growing up? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, the group Alabama was who I was most familiar with. And uh, But anyhow, yeah, sure, absolutely. Oh, there was actually a band, I forgot about them, called Alabama. Yeah, they were real good. But but the Jim Croce and Leonard Skinner, they both died in a plane crash. And I, re- I realized over time that many musicians did die in plane crashes. To me, that's very suspicious. Well, weren't they killed in a plane crash around Macomb, Mississippi? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think, they, did he do the song Freebird? Yes, yes. That, that's a very popular song, especially among skydivers. But, All but, my friends that are parachutists, they love Freebird. I think everybody does back in the day. But I must say, dying in these plane crashes left and right over the years, uh, I don't I don't get that. There's, there's something fishy going on. But anyway... Um, Pastor, not pastor, no, Rick Hughes, an evangelist, okay. You're a man after my own heart because you do radio as you broadcast Sunday mornings over 100 radio stations throughout the country. Tell tell us about that. Well, we have a show called The Flot, F-L-O-T, Line, L-I-N-E, and that's an acronym for Forward Line of Troops. And what we do is we teach the 10 unique problem-solving devices taught in the Word of God. Nothing new, nothing that's, you know, fancy. It's just something my pastor taught me years ago. But the forward line of troops are 10 unique problem-solving devices that if we learn them and use them out of the Bible, that we can stop the outside sources of adversity before they ever become the inside source of stress. And that's why we say adversity is inevitable, stress is optional. Now, do you put... Do you put your uh, radio station radio station shows on a podcast? Yes, we do podcasts on uh, Spotify and Apple iPod. Right now, we a little over two point two million downloads. Nice. Um, uh, and I'd like to direct everybody, if you have the time, and if you're so inclined to do so, go to RickHughesMinistries.org. What will they find there? Well, that just highlights what our ministry has been. Uh, For the past 50-plus years, I've been speaking in schools across America. When I first got into the ministry, I didn't know that was going to happen. 
I, I really didn't know I had to get to evangelism when I got saved, but I was in a Bible study, and it came light to me that God was doing something in my life. And uh, one day I was in Mississippi speaking in a school, and some men approached me and said, we'd like for you to go to every school in our state and tell your story. And so I did for the next two years. I spoke in 430 high schools across Mississippi. No. That was 1971, 72, 72, 73 school year. And then we moved into Georgia when Jimmy Carter was a governor in 74, 75, speaking in all the schools in Georgia. But we didn't finish those. We got about halfway through and we changed our direction from doing one assembly for, 50, for 45 minutes to one school for a whole week because I found that a lot of schools would say, can you come back and do a spiritual emphasis week? And I get a lot more traction with five days rather than one assembly for 45 minutes. But I was speaking in three schools a day, 15 schools a week. So when did you get saved? 1967. I accepted Christ as my Savior. How old were you? I was only 22. I I had been on the My Way Highway for a long time. I don't guess you've ever driven down that road, have you? Yeah, right. And uh, I had a... I had left school, left the University of Alabama, and my arrogance, uh, you know, arrogant people have an unrealistic self-image of who they are, and they also have unrealistic expectations. And so, arrogantly, I quit school, went down to my way, highway, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. I, I discovered that unhappy people take their unhappiness with them wherever they go. That's a strange thing, but it's true. And uh, I wound up on a date with Jane. I won't give her last name, but Jane took me to church. And that was the last place I ever went. I never went to church in my life. I thought weirdos went to church, not normal people. But I didn't get anything out of church. And it was after church at a Bible study when I met a guy named Winston from South Africa. And he explained the gospel to me. And that night I prayed and asked God to save me. And, I mean, I didn't feel anything weird or strange happen to me, but it did happen. And I went back home that night went to my bedroom, and it was the first night in my life in a long time I'd had peace with God. I didn't have that spotlight in my head showing me all the stupid things I'd done. And I went back to college, and went back, but instead of going back to Alabama to finish my football career, I went to a Bible college. Almost got thrown out for beating up the dorm director. And the, the uh, and you're a pretty big it, guy. You're What are you, 6'3", 250 back in those days? Yeah, back in those days I was, yeah. And... Uh, the dean of students called me in and said, we're glad you saved, son. You can't hit people. Yeah. Quit doing that. But I, I didn't know I still had a sin nature. I knew I was saved, but, you know, I always had a temper. You probably got one, too. And, and every now and then it would come out, and I had to learn how to control that by the filling of the Holy Spirit and not letting my flesh dictate policy in my life. Now, in one of your many books that you wrote called Practicing Your Christianity— you list God's 10 problem-solving devices, and the first one on that list is the ability to rebound. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's a basketball term, and most people—I was talking with a man this morning in California that said he brought it up, and I agree with him. A lot of Christians don't understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18, it mandates, be filled with the Spirit. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.13, we're dwelled with the Holy Spirit the minute we get saved. But at any one time in our life, right now, you're either in fellowship with God, filled with the Holy Spirit, or you're out of fellowship with God, under control of your sin nature. So 
the rebound is using First John one nine, where it says, "If if if you know it's a third class condition. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and purify us from all our wrongdoing." And the word confess is a it's a compound Greek verb called homo legeo. Homo, we use it in our English language, homosexual. And legeo means to say. So the word confess means to say the same. So when I rebound, what I'm doing is I'm admitting to God what sin I did. I lost my temper. I lusted. I lied. I did whatever. And God said if I would do that, he would be faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me. And that is how I get back in fellowship every day, minute by minute, day by day. We have to check ourselves and see, are we in fellowship or are we out of fellowship? Because if we're out of fellowship, we can do all the right things, Robert, but we do them in the wrong way. For example, prayer is the right thing. But the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I'm praying with unconfessed sin in my life, I need to rebound first or my prayer is not going to get through. That makes sense? Yes, it does. So sin breaks fellowship with God. And then what we must do on our end is to confess that sin, ask for forgiveness, and then repent, which means change your behavior. I did not say that. You said that, not me. What the word confess means is cite or name or agree with. There are three different words in the Bible for repent. Metanoia, metametamile, metanoeo. And the repent that that we think about is to become, you, you become a, you're an unbeliever and you become a believer. You change your mind about who and what Christ is. But you don't repent of your sin. That's impossible. you got a sin nature. You're going to sin as long as you live, but you have to learn how to deal with the sin and keep from sinning. But what I meant is you could change and alter and possibly eliminate a sin if you work at it and pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you to do so. Absolutely, yes. That's one of the keys to Christian life. As you grow and mature spiritually, you overcome certain sins in your life. But, you know, the greatest sins are mental attitude sins. Most people don't even think about that. Worry, fear, bitterness, jealousy, these are all mental attitude sins. And most of the sins we commit are in our head, not necessarily with our hands. I'm with Rick Hughes. And if you want more information on Rick, just simply go to rickhughesministries.org. Now, the second of these 10 problem-solving devices is filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Rick, what's that? Well, this is what we're mandated as believers to, to live by that. Uh, there's either one or two ways that you're going to live. You're either going to live under control of your flesh are you going to live under control of the Holy Spirit? There's no either or about it. So right now, in this moment, you, Robert, me, Rick, we're either in fellowship or we're out of fellowship. If we're in fellowship, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're out of fellowship, we're under control of our sin nature. And what gets us out of fellowship is sin. And when we don't confess the sin, then we let the sin nature take over. So we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. And that's where a rebound comes in. So, yes, filling the Holy Spirit solves the problem of your genetically formed sin nature that you got from your old man. You know, that's where you get it from. It comes down to the male. And to do that, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And that means denying our human nature, a human nature which takes us in the opposite direction of God. Well, that's the idea, to say no to the flesh, which, which is one of the three enemies that you have the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
and most people get they think the devil's after him. I always think about that passage in Acts seventeen fifteen, where these guys tried to heal somebody, and the demon said, "Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who the heck are you?" Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't understand that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's a created being. He's not like God the Father, who's eminent and transcendent. And so I think a lot of times Satan doesn't even know who certain individuals are because they don't make enough waves to get his attention. So most people can't get over the victories of the flesh or, or the lure of the worlds where they fail. Now, the Holy Spirit constantly prompts us, correct, to do the right yeah. thing. That's what the Lord Jesus said. He'll guide you and direct you in John 16. He said, I'm going to leave you. And the Holy Spirit, John 14, excuse me, I'm going to leave and the Holy Spirit's going to come and mentor you. He's called a mentor or like a coach, and he coaches us in how we should live our life. He convicts, convicts us. He convinces us. That's his job. And so, when I'm studying the Bible, if I'm let's 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 take going to church, which is a right thing. If you go to church, is it wrong to go to church? No. Is there a right way to go to church and a wrong way to go to church? Yes. If I'm in church not filled with the Holy Spirit, which means I have unconfessed sin in my life that I'm doing the right thing, but in the wrong way. Well, let me show you how easy that is. Eight o'clock in the morning, you get up and argue with your wife, argue with the kids. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Get with it. I got to get on, be late. Come on, come on. Go, 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 go. And then on the way to church, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get mad, lose your temper, and they flash the middle finger at you and you're all bent out of shape. And then you walk into church and, hello, God, it's me, God, Herman, I'm here, God. The Holy Spirit has been quenched and grieved in your life when you do that. He can't help you understand what the pastor's teaching because the whole concept of going to church is to learn, apply, and glorify. Lag, L-A-G. Learn God's Word, apply God's Word, and glorify God as a result of that. And you can't do that out of fellowship with the Holy Spirit quenched and grieved in your life. And we should never confine God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to just a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning. It has to be 24-7 every day throughout our life. I agree with that. I think every believer should be under a well-qualified pastor, and I believe they should be studying consistently on a consistent basis. And, uh, yes, much more than once a week, you know. And let's look at it this way. If you have a child and you send them to the first grade, and they go an hour and a half a week, they're never going to get out of the first grade. So if you go to church 30 minutes on Sunday morning, 30 minutes on Sunday night, 30 minutes on Wednesday night, that's an hour and a half a week, you're never going to get out of the first grade spiritually. You have to take in the Word of God, and that's why it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, right? A dividing the Word of Truth. Study is not easy. That's a Greek word called spudazo, and it means to apply yourself, to learn, to grow. And so, uh, you're not, the Bible's not a novel. It's not designed for you to read through it and figure it all out on yourself. It's a textbook. And God calls certain men, gives them a certain gift called pastor teacher. Poimain kai didaskalos is the Greek word, shepherds and teachers, and their job is to study and teach you the Word of God, and your job is to cycle that through your brain and apply it into your life so it becomes livable. You live it in your life. There are two different words in the Bible for knowledge. One is gnosis and one is epinosis. Gnosis is knowledge and epinosis is full knowledge. And knowledge is okay, but full knowledge is what you're looking for. That means you apply it into your life. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke eleven twenty seven, happiness belongs to those people 
who hear my Father's word and keep it. There's the application. Now, the third thing you say we all need to have is a faith rest drill. Explain. Well, you remember when Moses brought the Jews out of Egypt and brought them up against the Red Sea, and they were panicking, and the Pharaoh was after them? Yes. What did Moses say? Stand still. Shut up. Quit whining. Quit crying. Stand still and watch what God's about to do. That's the faith rest drill, standing on the promises of God. There are over 7,000 promises in the Bible for you and I, and we've got to learn to cash those checks. Uh, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in you. That's a promise. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against you will ever prosper. That's a promise. So when you hit circumstances in your life that are adverse and difficult, you can panic, you can freak out, or you can go to the promises of the Word of God and stand on those promises like a shield. The shield of faith is what Paul called it in Ephesians 6, standing behind the promises of God. That's faith rest. And we're told very specifically to be anxious about nothing and to stop worrying. Do we do that nowadays? Pardon me? Do we do that nowadays? I mean, we're told by the Almighty to be anxious about nothing and to stop worrying. And I think most people yeah. don't even take that into consideration, that we should yeah, stop. Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly right. Paul talked about that in Philippians, but anxiety can be a sin. It can develop into a little self-pity party. And worrying is a sin, for sure, because that's assuming an unassigned responsibility. The Lord's in control. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to be afraid about. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. You're correct, Robert. So we need to, more and more, every day of our lives, we need to trust in God more and more and live by faith and not by sight. Yes, trusting in the Lord is very interesting. How can you trust a God you don't understand? And what am I supposed to trust? I mean, what, what, what is it you want me to trust in? And so that's where we get into the promises of the Word of God. We get into the provisions. The one thing you have to learn to trust in is His unfailing love. He never will abandon you. He'll never throw you under the bus. He'll never turn His back on you. You might turn your back on Him, but He'll never turn His back on you. And so this is what we know. People say, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. Well, John said... These things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. He that has a son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. And you can trust God. He would never lie to you about that. You also talk about a grace orientation, which is incredibly important because we are saved through faith by grace. Correct. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man would brag about it. That's saving grace. And then there's living grace. There's dying grace. And there's surpassing grace. Living grace are the grace provisions that God provides for you, even in eternity past, as he provided for you. And dying grace is the greatest moment of your life as a mature believer is to, is to leave this, this, this world and go to the home office. I mean, it's an unbelievable thing that when it happens. And then surpassing grace is the eye has never seen, the ear has never heard, the heart has never felt, the amazing things that God has for those that love him in a way of his appearance. So salvation is a gift given to us by God, uh, and we did nothing, absolutely nothing, to deserve it or earn it. It's a gift. Not one thing. Not one thing. You know, the Bible says there are none of us that are righteous, no, not one, that all of our righteousness is like a filthy rag in God's eyes. 
I cannot tell your listeners what filthy rag means in the Hebrew, but it's not very nice. And it would embarrass people if I told them what the Hebrew word is. But what God is saying is, I don't care what you do. The greatest good you can conjure up does not impress me. You cannot impress God. He's not emotional. He's not going to jump up and down and clap his hands and say, oh, goody, goody, goody. Look, Robert's being good today, so I'm going to bless him. That's not the way it works. And that's you a tough cannot- concept. That's a tough concept for people to to receive, the fact that they did nothing to earn it. Because human beings, as a as a reflex, want to take credit for something. They want to act and give effort and, and sit back and say, yeah, I got that on my own. I deserved it. So the notion of yeah, you getting salvation for absolutely nothing except your openness and your sincere love of Jesus, they don't really want to gravitate to. Well, that's the arrogance. Religious arrogance is terrible because the religious arrogance thinks that they can impress God. You know, the arrogant person thinks he's he's good. He thinks he's okay. And they have this unrealistic self-image. They have unrealistic expectation, which means they think they're going to go to heaven. Unfortunately, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, talks about the books of works are opened. Those whose names were not found in the book of life are judged out of the books, books of works. And so God will give them a chance. Okay, tell me what you did. Okay, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And then, of course, no good, no good, no good, no good. Depart from me. And that's the sad thing about it is there are going to be people that are going to be in heaven at the great white throne of judgment, cast into the lake of fire, thinking that they were good people because they were religious people, because they didn't smoke, drink, chew, or hang around to those that do. And that's the greatest lie Satan uses is religious intimidation. He is He's the author of all religion, I promise you. And then you talk about doctrinal orientation. What might that mean? Well, it means you, you, you orient your life to the Word of God. When the Bible says the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow is a critical thought and incense of the heart, it means this. The power to live is in the Word of God. It's the most powerful thing you can ever have. Paul called it a treasure. And listen to this, Robert. This is what's interesting. Do you know the Greek word for treasure, what it is? No. It's the word thesaurus. It's a word treasure. The Word of God is a word treasure, and it makes you rich. And the Holy Spirit gives you insight how to spend that treasure. And it's called wisdom. Wisdom. And that's the amazing thing about doctrinal orientation. If you read Proverbs, fantastic words, insight, wisdom, discernment, understanding. Insight, wisdom, discernment, understanding. Doctrinal orientation gives you wisdom, insight, discernment, and understanding so that you kind of have spiritual x-ray vision. You can see things other people don't see because you understand what they don't understand. So the Bible is the solution to any problem on earth. Absolutely. This is Don't Bring Up God. Yes. My name is Robert. I'm here with the board guy, and I have a special guest today, Rick Hughes. He is a radio guy, but he has over like 100 stations as opposed to my one. But that's okay. He has over 100 radio stations that he broadcasts throughout the country every Sunday morning. And if you want more information on Rick, go to rickhughesministries.org. He wrote a ton of books, and you know what? They're all free. You can get his stuff for free, so you really need to check this out. So, Rick, the six-problem-solving device you give 
in your book, Practicing Your Christianity, is a personal sense of destiny. Please explain. Well, you know, you like poetry. You've written some phenomenal poems. And when I married my wife, I quoted a poem that won her heart. It said, kisses are germs, germs are hated. Kiss me, darling, I've been vaccinated. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and she wrote one back, said, roses are red, violets are blue, your mama's good looking. What happened to you? <laughs> I think we can go on for the rest of the show with these. You got any more? <laughs> I got a lot of those. Anyhow, uh, what are we talking about? The personal, the personal sense of destiny that you talk yeah. about. Yes, uh, that's, that's an interesting thing. Many years ago, I had the privilege of being close friend with a military veteran. Uh, there's, a, there's a veteran's home in my city, a $50 million veteran's home here where I live, called the Robert, <coughs> Robert L. Howard Veterans Home. And Colonel Howard and I were riding down the road together. He uh, had retired from the military, Medal of Honor winner, nominated twice, one of the most highly decorated soldiers that ever lived. He's with the Lord today, but I had the privilege of being his friend. And he wanted to run for senator in the state of Alabama, and Ross Perot bankrolled him for a lot of money. You remember Ross Perot? Yes. I liked him. He had spunk. Anyhow, here's what happened. We were talking, and we were in my automobile, and we had been on a short trip together, and we were headed back. And I said, Colonel, how do you know God wants you to be a senator? And he said, well, uh, I have an intuition. And I, I boldly said, you can't do this on an intuition, sir. There's got to be a way for you to know what God wants you to do. And he said, well, okay, how would you know? So I explained to him an illustration I learned many years ago about a ship coming into a harbor at night. This was before the invention of GPS. But if you can picture in your mind a wide harbor with a narrow channel going into it, and a guy up on the bridge with the captain said, how do you get your boat into that harbor without running aground in that narrow channel? And the captain said, you see those three red lights in the harbor? He said, yeah. So, well, I have to line the bow of my boat up with those three red lights, and as long as I can only see one light, I'm safe to go ahead. So I explained to Colonel Howard, those three red lights were the witness of the Word of God, the witness of the circumstances, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. So if God wants you to do something, he will tell you in the Bible exactly what you're supposed to do. And that's one lesson I learned when I read this verse, Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in bonds. I prayed. I learned that maybe three days after I got saved. I read that verse. I never forgot it. So I said, God will show you in the scripture what he wants you to do, Colonel. And then the circumstances will be available, and the Holy Spirit will give you a peace about it. I put him on an airplane and sent him back to uh, San Antonio Brook Medical Center where he was headed for some more surgery. And he called me up a couple of days later, and I know he won't mind me telling you this, but he said, you, S-O-B, you got me confused. I said, how did I get you confused, sir? He said, well, he said, I, I, I don't have the Scripture, but I have the peace. The Holy Spirit told me to do it. And I have the circumstances, but I can't find it in the Scripture. And I said, well, this is beyond my pay grade, sir. You need to talk to another person a little smarter than me, so... I put him in touch with my pastor who got him squared away. But this is the problem. Most people don't know what the will of God is for their life, so they get impetuous and do right things in wrong ways. 
And you have to understand, does God have a will for me? Yes, he has a geographical will where he wants you to live, has a will of what he wants you to think. It's called divine viewpoint, and that's in the Bible where it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. In Romans twelve three, stop thinking of yourself in terms of arrogance beyond what you should think, but think in terms of humility as God has signed to each one of us a standard of thinking from his word. So this means that you walk through a door and you leave your agenda behind. And for the first time in your life, you're on God's agenda. And you're doing exactly God's will for your life. And this verse that, the verse that comes to mind with me when you're talking about all this is, um, it says, what does it say now? Uh, Stop continuing in ignorance, but, to tr- but try to discern the will of the Lord. And his will for our lives is incredible so much better than what we ourselves can do so he 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 gives us tasks and assignments to fulfill and like you say the closer you get to god and jesus the no the more you'll know exactly what to do because he'll tell you in one way or another yeah he will tell you through the scripture for sure and uh that's exactly right you're right on the you're right on the money there my buddy now, number seven on the on this list is a personal love for God, which is what? That's the greatest virtue any person could ever have. Virtue love is incredible. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. That's reciprocal. That's reciprocal love. But then you, you and I were talking about this earlier, about loving God. I was talking with somebody about it. might not have been you, but... The Bible says in 1 John 5, 3, if we love him, we will obey him, and his mandates are not grievous. Personal love for God is your motivational virtue in life. It's what motivates you to be obedient. It's what motivates you to seek his will. And if you don't love him, you're not going to do that. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I give you this commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's our main objective as believers, to love God. And that's virtue love. That's a motivational virtue in our life. It calls us to be obedient. And the next one is that impersonal love. We'll talk about that next, another problem-solving device. But if you don't have personal love for God, and that's people, you know, they say, oh, I love God. Yes, I love God. Well, how can you love a God you don't even know? Exactly. You You need to learn and educate yourself about him. And we love God, like you said, by obeying him, which includes the Ten Commandments, and all his statutes and doctrines that he gives, correct? Well, there are 490 commandments in the Old Testament called Codex 1, Codex 2, and Codex 3. And uh, we're not we're not living by those Old Testament laws. We're under a new law, a higher law, law of grace and love in Christ Jesus. And so loving God, you know, many people say they love God, but they don't. And... Uh, and the reason is they don't understand it, but that's trying to say God is sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, immutability, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity. I mean, I could teach you 10 hours on each one of those subjects. And if you don't understand that, how can you love God if you don't even know him? You, you, you love what you think you know. And you, you, when, you, when you try to put God into human terms, try to make him into a human, and you think he's going to respond the way you respond, that's not true. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't get emotional. God doesn't live by emotions like we do, you know? And there is a new yeah. covenant ever since Jesus came on the scene. And people say, well, I believe in the Old Testament, and I don't believe in the New. But 
this new covenant was talked about in that Old Testament. I know Jeremiah talked about it. Well, everything in the Old Testament is relevant to us today, for sure. Not not necessarily the dietary laws or right. some of the they had to live by. But we don't yes, stone I mean, anymore, for instance. Pardon me? We don't stone anybody anymore, for instance. No, we get a lot of people getting stoned, but that's not the Yeah, exactly. Problem. Now, the eighth problem-solving device is impersonal love for all mankind. Because yep. we not we cannot despise and hate our fellow man and still love God at the same time, correct? Yeah, I mean, what do you do if you have a W.O.J. for a neighbor? A what? W.O.J., weird, obnoxious jerk. <laughs> I used you to be know, that. I used to be that. I should put that on a, on a hat uh, 30 years ago. That would be me. Yeah, I gotta love that weird, obnoxious jerk, you know? The guy that has the personality disorder, you know? So... How do I love him? Well, I love him the same way God loved me. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How could God love me? He loved me not based on his my character, but his character. He loved me based on who he is, not based on who I am. And that's the way impersonal love is. I can love you based on who I am, not who you are. That That's very that's- interesting to me. That really hit home when I was reading it out of your books. That I love you because of who I am, not necessarily because of who you are. And God did the same thing. Yes, he did. The uh, love for God, uh, the, the two main commandments over the other tens uh, that Jesus talked about, and were in the Old Testament also, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So this love thing is imperative. It's it's. It's imperative, and it's a sign of a mature believer. I live in a neighborhood, and you probably do too. Not, there's not a lot of homes around me, maybe 10 or 15 homes, but I have never seen such petty, unhappy people that complain about what their neighbor's doing. Oh, he's cutting his grass on Sunday. Oh, he's selling my property. Oh, I don't like the way they're cutting that tree down. I mean, you talk about people that are petty, and I got to love these people. I got to, I got to, not get mad at them, not get angry at them, not get bitter about it. And the only way I can do it is to forgive them just like God forgave me. So uh, I don't hold grudges. You don't hold grudges. We don't live bitter. We love people based on who and what we are, not who and what they are. And it's easier, and I find it easier to do that when you're concentrating on things of, of above, from above, instead of things down here on earth. If you're if you think about from time to time during the week, like I know people never do, think about the new heavens and the new earth and the rewards and treasures that we will receive in heaven. That is our end game. That is our inheritance, as the Bible says. So if you stress that in your own mind, the stuff down here on earth becomes so less important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah don't, look at, don't look at what's here. Look at what's coming. That's where the, the real prize is. Exactly. And I wish people would do that more so. This is Don't Bring Up God. My name is Robert. Remember the podcast, if you want to listen to the last hundred shows that we did, simply search Don't Bring Up God podcast. And I'm here with Rick Hughes, uh, a former football player, like we talked about briefly earlier. Uh, I mean, I got to I got to give you at least one football question before we're done. Did you ever did you ever talk to or meet Joe Namath? Oh, yeah, sure. He was a senior my freshman year. 
And uh, very interesting. When he signed with the Jets, they gave him a brand-new Lincoln Continental green with a white top convertible. Went to the senior bowl, and somebody took a knife and slashed his top off. Whoa! I mean, there must have been a lot of jealousy around him because, number one, a guy like that with his green eyes, all the girls must have wanted to meet him for sure. Well, Joe was an enigma when he came to Alabama. And if you've ever seen that special on ESPN about his life, he's an amazing individual. He's only been married once and uh, never remarried after he got a divorce. But he still lives in Florida. He's a great guy. Got over his drinking problem. And, uh, yeah, from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, I used to, we'd be out there warming up for practice. We weren't allowed to tackle the quarterback, you know. You had to keep your hands off the quarterback. Right. But So he would have a special colored jersey on in practice and things like that. But he he didn't hang out where the, all of us guys, when we went to, after practice, we went to the Tide to get a beer. Well, Joe went to the Cotton Club to get the hard stuff. He hung out with the Yankee guys. All but right. that eventually eventually became one of the guys and uh, a lot of stories about Joe, but I have great respect for Joe. Kenny Staber and I were freshmen together. We came in together, but he was, he didn't, he didn't mind anybody. He never paid attention to any rules. If there was a room made to be broke, he broke it. Well, Namath, I mean, he was always a class guy. He always had that charm. I, I never had a problem with him. I always liked him. I don't know anybody that doesn't like him and Stabler. He, like you said, he was a cool cat. But you had to keep an eye on him. Oh my gosh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Most a lot of nights he'd take off and drive to Foley, Alabama, and when he had school the next morning, just date his girlfriend, then come back and sleep through class. He got kicked off the team one time. Barry Bryant kicked him off the team for something, and then he eventually got back on the team. But uh, Kenny's room was next to mine in the athletic dorm. He always had a party going on in his room. Well, I'm sure you got a ton of stories, but let's continue this, what we're doing here. Uh, we're talking about your book, Practicing Your Christianity, and uh, inside there's uh, 10 steps, 10 uh, godly problem-solving devices, and we, we got two more to go. Let's see if we can get them in here. Uh, number nine is sharing the happiness of God. Elaborate. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ told the disciples in John 15, 11, and this is in my book, These Things I Taught You So That My Joy May Be In You and Your Joy May Be Made Full. What exactly did he teach them? Well, he said, I have taught you these things. These things are the antecedent to what he just said. So from John 13 to John 15, 11, you can read that for yourself and you can see what he taught them. It's the best Bible class ever for one night and just a few hours before he got arrested. But what happens is that there's plus eight sharing the happiness of God. And, you know, I told you earlier, unhappy people take your unhappiness with them wherever they go. Many people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress the idiots that don't even like them, you know. And when you're in school, you know, a young boy, you think nobody likes you. And when you get a little older, you don't care if they like you or not. And when you get to be really old, you find out they never cared about you anyhow. Nobody's talking about you. Right. Yeah, I, I see I see people travel, oh, I'm going here, I'm going there, and they think it's greener on the other side, and they end up being more miserable. Yeah. The happiness is called the joy, the joy of the Lord, and living in your soul, it overflows in your life. And it's, it's commensurated with contentment, and that's a great. That's why Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever circumstances I'm in. 
I know how to get along with a lot or a little doesn't make any difference. I'm content. I can I can do anything through Christ who gives me the strength. So that's the great joy for the believer is to be content. To have contentment then means to be patient and to mean that share the happiness of God. And it depends on our volition, what we want to learn and don't want to learn. People some people enjoy being unhappy and miserable. They have a little pity party, and they want you to feel sorry for them. Yeah, playing the victim. Now, happiness, yeah. for the most part, I always thought depended on happen happenstances. Things yeah, outside no. uh, dictate to you whether you're happy or sad. But joy, real joy, is from the inside that never fades. Am I on the, Am that's, I right there? That's exactly right. It's a tranquility of soul uh, related to an inner peace, inner happiness. And it's a wonderful thing for the believer to have when he has that contentment and inner peace and tranquility in his soul. It's a great way to live, but it only comes as a mature believer experiences the Word of God, learns the Word of God, applies the Word of God, and it depends on a lot of decisions that they make. And so, uh, you know, I just said people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need and press people they don't even like. Somebody asked Elvis one time, said, Elvis, you said when you got rich and famous, you'd be happy. Are you happy? And Elvis said, no, I'm lonely. Now, you didn't share a dorm with Elvis, too, did you? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that Elvis but, story is quite is quite the story, to say the least. Yeah, it was an unhappy man, that's for sure. Now, Paul says we must joyfully endure whatever comes our way. Now, I'm not sure if it's endure, endure joyfully. I think it's joyfully endure that, that way. Uh, can you explain that and what he meant? Well, you know, Paul said in Romans and 2 Corinthians 12 that he had a thorn in his flesh, and he prayed three times for God to take it away, and every time God said, no, 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 not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do it. And so Paul then said, I have learned that whatever is in me to have contentment, I've learned whatever is there, that I can be content and I can have happiness because it's all related to the power of Christ in me. So whether I get healed or not is not the issue. The issue is not that. So that's what people have to learn. The issue is not what's going on in your life is making you unhappy or not unhappy. Happy or not unhappy, the issue is what you're thinking. That's why the Bible says we have to have the mind of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, even on the cross, was not unhappy. It wasn't fun to be there. It wasn't fulfilling to be there, except he knew it was a God's plan. But he wasn't sad. He was doing exactly what he knew he had to do. He knew why he came to the world to do that. And he told the disciples, I'm going to be killed and put to death. And he told them, the same thing's going to happen to you in John 16 after I'm gone. Satan's going to turn his attack on you, and they're going to kill you, and they think they're doing God a favor. But he wasn't unhappy. And so whatever goes down in your life, if our listeners today that are listening to your show are unhappy because they're not using the problem-solving devices God designed for them to live by. So through any kind of pain and suffering— we still can maintain maintain joy within. Yeah, I had a friend that passed away a few years ago, and the nurse at the hospice nurse came out and told her daughter said, "Oh, your mom is in so much pain. She just, you just, I hate to hear her moaning." And her daughter went in there and said, "I'm sorry, she's not moaning. She's singing. Listen again." And she was oh. humming a she was humming a, a, a spiritual tune that she learned as a child. She wasn't moaning. It reminds me of Stephen when he was stoned to death. He looked up yeah. toward, upward uh, to, into the clouds or through the clouds to God Almighty, and he was fine. He didn't. I mean, he's getting stoned. Who cares? He didn't care. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
complete confidence in God. Absolutely. What a wonderful way to live. And the last of your God's 10 problem-solving devices, according to you in the book that you wrote, Practicing Your Christianity, is occupation with Christ, which gets rid of yeah. all unrealistic expectations by knowing the truth. It's, uh, as, we, as we said in the book, it's obtaining occupation with Christ is a gradual process. You don't get there overnight. You grow, and as the Bible says, grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But our Lord Jesus Christ said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The word yoke is the word zugos, Z-U-G-O-S. And what that means is that the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to yoke up with him, like you yoke up an animal to a plow, and learn of me. Learn, that's the key to it. Because he said, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm not asking you to do anything you can't do. I'm not going to put something on you you can't handle. I love you, and I want you to learn that. And that's a wonderful way to be occupied with Christ, be yoked up to him, so there's no limits of what God can do in your life if you do that. And all this that we're talking about takes time. We need patience, self-control, and discipline. And that doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Correct? No, you're exactly, you're exactly right. You, you're not going to go to some Christian camp, throw a stick on a fire, and promise God you're going to be a great Christian from now on out. You can't do that. It's a day-by-day -day battle, daily struggle in our lives to keep stay filled with the Holy Spirit, take in God's Word, and glorify Jesus Christ with every thought, decision, and action that we do. That's our objective as a Christian, because what we want to do and what you want to do is you want to represent Jesus Christ to your audience that listens to you. That's, that's what you want to do individually. As a local church, you want to represent Christ to the community. There's a little bit of a difference there, represent and represent. But that's exactly what you want to do. You want to become the person that represents Jesus Christ so that when people see you, they see Christ. And you talked about the promises. I guess there's thousands of, it in the, of them in the Bible. The promises of God and Jesus. Can you mention a few that we need to remember every day of our lives and hold on to so we can have hope for better things to come? Well, you know, a great promise would be the promise of eternal life. Uh, he that believes in the Son shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And he that believeth not, the wrath of God abides on him forever. That's a promise. The promise of these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life. That's a promise. And so people that don't have the confidence that they're going to heaven when they die don't believe the promises. The promises are there. And the promises says, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. The promises says, I will never put more on you than you can handle, you can stand. First Corinthians 10, 13, he won't allow you to be tested above your ability to handle it. The Bible is full of these 7,000 promises that I've been able to identify, others as well, but there's like money in the bank, and you can't cash them if you don't know what they are. You know, you got to be able to write a check on that money. It won't do you any good. And if you can't know the promises, you can't claim the promises. And so part of any believer's uh, note should be a notebook where he records down promises and refers back to them from time to time. That's why we wrote our small book, Promises and Principles of the Word of God, and it's available free of charge. What comes to mind is out in the ocean, all by yourself, drowning, and... You get thrown a life preserver every time you think of one of God's promises because it can, it, like I said, it gives you hope to move on and it saves you because throughout the Bible, the book says that God and Jesus, Jesus especially, came down 
in order to help us, to save us, and rescue us. Three things that I never forget. In Matthew 8, you might remember the storm on the Sea of Galilee. They, they, they left Peter's house in Caesarea and went and got in the boat and were going across. And a tremendous storm hit them. And the disciples freaked out, thought they were going to drown. And they, Jesus was asleep in front of the boat. And they woke him up and said, save us, save us, save us. And the Lord Jesus Christ stood up and called them short-time trusters. Exactly. He little faith. And then he said one word, stop. And the whole slit sea of Galilee got slick. <laughs> And here's the deal. They thought they were going to die. That's the first That's the first test any believer has to pass, the fear of death. If you don't pass that, you're never going to be a mature believer. And when they got over to the Gadaria on the other side of the lake, don't forget they had to come back across the lake again to get back to Caesarea. So that probably was a little bit of a test. Some of them might have said, I think I'll walk around, Lord, instead of ride the boat back. But believers have to pass the test of fear of death because Satan uses that intimidate people we got a, like less than a minute left tell us about uh rick hughes ministries.org and flotline anything you want to say to our listeners well i'm honored to be on your show i appreciate your stand and the things you say i know you're a great individual in that area and i'm so happy to be affiliated with you i hope i've done you justice today but our our, our website we we're unlike most people we don't charge money we don't solicit funds we don't ask for funds we're not trying to sell you anything. We just want to give you some information. And hopefully if they'll come to our website, or if they go to our podcast, they'll be able to get something out of that. They'll encourage them and teach them. But I'm not a pastor. I'm going to try to funnel them to a pastor where they can grow spiritually. Okay. And one comment about Bear Bryant back in the day. What about it? <laughs> Good or bad? Like, what kind of guy oh, was he? Was... One word to describe him. Unbelievable. Fantastic. <laughs> So, so he he uh, he measures up to the legend. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh. He, he walked in the room. Everybody shut up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Rick Hughes, for being here. All roads lead back to God. Tyler, we love you. We'll see you again.